0: Yeah, good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's very cool to see everybody. Yeah, and I just want to say thanks again to the, the uh, worship team, worship band, music team, whatever you want to call them. Um, yeah, it's just really, you blessed us this morning, you did very well, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to soaking more in what, what you have to bring. So, yeah, keep pushing in. Thanks, everyone. Um, yeah, so today we're finishing up with Philippians. Uh, we took a two-week break on that, but uh, we've been busy with the book of Philippians for the last month and, or a bit more than that. And uh, the book of Philippians is a book that has a lot of radical things in it. As in, like, it's, it's actually making a call to what is the natural Christian life supposed to look at look like, and it's quite a, a radical life. Now, as you go through the, the, the book of Philippians, you, or the letter of Philippians, I should rather say, letter to the Philippians, you see Paul kind of almost can't stop himself as he's just like one thought leads into the next, and he's just like this, this thing, just I, I just mentioned this thing, but this thing now came to mind, I need to talk about this, and then this is another thing which I think will be helpful. And uh, yeah, it's just almost like overflowing um, in the book, and, and the book has a, a very strong core of joy in it as well, and you can almost see this bubbling over in Paul as as he's now writing this. Um, So today we're looking at Philippians 4, and I thought it would be actually good to just go through the entire chapter and then find these little golden nuggets which which God has hidden there for us. Sorry, there's a bit of a feedback. Um, And... uh, yeah, then as, as, as we go through it, you'll kind of see this is what I'm talking about where he's just kind of one thought leads into the next and then this thing I just mentioned, I need to mention this other thing to you as well. So if you start with Philippians 4 verse 1, it says, therefore, my brothers, and then as soon as you read the word therefore, you have to realize, oh, shucks, I actually don't know what I'm supposed to do because of something else. So then you go back and you realize, oh, someone somewhere in history decided to put an arbitrary chapter mark here, but actually it was one continuous letter. So just to pick up a little bit on the thought um, where Paul was leaving off in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, "Um, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he says that our citizenship is in heaven, and we're from heaven, we're awaiting our Savior to come. And then as soon as he comes... He'll subject everything to himself, but he'll also transform us to be like him. We see that in 1 John as well. So when we see him, we will be like him. We don't know what we will be like, but we know we will be like him. So so that's an exciting thing to look forward to. But uh, now in this attitude of waiting, almost in anticipation, excited awaiting um, of Jesus returning, then he goes into chapter 4 and he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So, just to talk about this, he, he says, I love you, I long for you, my joy and my crown. You, you're kind of this, um, this group of people that I'm so proud of. I almost brag about you everywhere I go. You're this, this crown that I, that I have um, because of what the Lord has done in you. But the main point he's making is because you're waiting the Savior from heaven, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, the, the reality of life is that there are many seductions, many temptations, many challenges and many things that we're going to face that will want us to fall into cowardice and either just submit to this thing or to just back off and, and get out of the fight entirely. And he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. And this, this phrase, stand firm, is actually in the context of an army. So if you think of the olden days when two armies would line up, and then the w- one army facing the other army. And then as soon as the battle begins, the one army charges on the other army. And then you have to stand firm. You have to stand your ground. and In that moment, everything in you is going to shout, I want to run away. (laughs) Like There's this inherent cowardice that might stir up in you. But in that, you know that if I back out, the enemy's going to overrun us. They're going to take ground. They're going to uh, take over our country. We're going to suffer. So because of the cost of giving up, you know I must stand firm and fight this. And the same thing applies here. It's because if we don't stand firm we're not going to face Jesus with an eager expectation. Um, we're going to be like the foolish, foolish virgins, which on that day Jesus is going to return and he's going to say, I don't know you. Did you have oil in your lamp? Did you stand firm? Did you remain in him? So that's the, the one aspect, is we need to stand firm, even when all of these temptations and all of these struggles and all of these um, things that come against us, persecutions and all these things even. We need to stand firm. But it's, it's also great that he doesn't just say stand firm, like just... Muster up the courage, and now you must just stand, prop yourself up. It says, stand firm thus in the Lord. You're going to see this phrase, in the Lord, again. It's, it's a positional thing. You place yourself in the Lord. You, you surround yourself with his presence. You stay in the vine. You abide in the vine. You surround yourself with other believers that's also in the Lord, and in that you also stay firm. So it's not just a, I need to do this by myself. With pe- people and with the Lord, in the Lord, you are able to stand firm. Okay, so then he goes on, Um, he's now just spoken about standing firm and like, we need to have this anticipation of uh, eternity, and then verse 2 he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So immediately he transitions to something, it's like there's some kind of a quarrel going on here, there's some kind of a fight, we don't actually know what it is, we don't know who these two, these two women, we don't know who they are, Um, we don't know what happened, we don't know any of the backstory. All that we know is, we'll read that now, is that they co with Paul at some point. So they they've, they've partnered with him in ministry and actually sharing the gospel, um, probably in Philippi. And then something happened, and now there's conflict in between them. And then Paul's like, I, I am serious about this. As, as Euodia and Syntyche, who are in the Philippian church, as they're now receiving this letter, he speaks to them directly. He says, I entreat you, Euodia, I entreat you Syntyche, please agree in the Lord. <laughs> And then he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, who we also don't know anything about, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are on the book of life. So he's now saying, okay, well, please agree. But then he immediately calls on all the other believers in that vicinity. He says, true companion, um, the others that also worked side by side with me, come around these women, like help them sort this thing out. He's almost like calling on all the resources of the church to help resolve this conflict that exists, that is not, um, that's causing them to not be unified. And unity doesn't mean that there never is conflict, but unity means that when there's conflict, you actually work it through. So (laughs) he's actually calling a third party to, to help with this reconciliation process, and that's often true for us as well. So often we can't resolve our own fights. Um, we want to stand on our own mountain of our own mountain of being right, and you've got a, if you've got a personality type like me or Naku, then we're not going to back down. So, so you need someone to often be the third party in the conversation to um, just help you resolve, um, resolve issues. Now, um, in this aspect of uh, being of one mind uh, or, or actually agree in the Lord that, that kind of Follows on what Paul was talking about in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, um, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. This is Paul's desire for this church, is to be of the same mind, of the same spirit, the same heart. That they would move together, do everything, as, as you would see, actually, the Trinity operate. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As they are three persons, but they operate in one unity. They, their purpose and their desires and their goal is the same, even though they fulfill four different functions. So, Paul wants the church to operate. We, for four different functions, we look different, we maybe have different uh, views and opinions on things, but he wants us to move forward with one, one goal and one purpose. Now, I just want to lean a little bit deeper into this aspect of uh, disagreeing, and, and there's this very interesting passage in Matthew 5, verse 23, where Jesus is speaking, it's a Sermon on the Mount. It says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and, and there, as you're busy offering your gift, you remember that your brother has something against you, not you have something against your brother. You're coming to serve in the house of the Lord. You're coming to do the things that God expects of you. And then you realize, oh, shucks, I just remembered. My brother has something against me. Then what Jesus says, what you're supposed to do is leave your gift. Don't do the thing that God is directly expecting you to do. Don't just keep serving in the church or do the, do the right things. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God puts value, uh, a very high value on actually this reconciliation within the body so even now if there's someone that you know that you've got something against don't just or that someone has something against you rather i should say don't just say Ah, oh, it's fine time will resolve it the bible encourages us go and reconcile with this brother before you just carry on with the work of ministry so then 1 john 4 verse 20 also says whoever claims to love god yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. It's, it's just the attitude that if we claim we love God, we claim we know God, we, we can, you can test that by seeing how much you love your brothers who you can't see. Because if you don't even love your brothers who you can see, how can you claim to love God who you cannot see? And uh, yeah, just the last comment here um, on that verse... Uh, um, philippians 4 verse 3 he says that uh, whose names on the book of life my fellow workers whose names on the book of life and just a short comment on that it's a phrase that you see throughout the bible but especially in the book of revelation and it's talking about um it's the record of those people that belong to god that will ultimately spend eternity with them and we obviously want our names to be in the book of life <laughs> but i'm not going to get deeper into that just now okay so um, verse 4 philippians 4 verse 4. And this is a very, very famous verse. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So that the Lord is at hand is again this thing of he's, he's returning soon. Be ready. Like, do these things because God is coming soon. Um, So there are two qualities that Paul is kind of highlighting that he wants to see in in the Philippians series. He says he wants them to have joy, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, you see this phrase, in the Lord. It's not just, um, oh, I must just have joy, I must just muster it up. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. You find this joy and this rejoicing when you place yourself in him. That's the first step, is you position yourself in him, and then you rejoice. It's not just an act of, I must just muster up this joy, joy, and where is it going to come from? It's a fruit that flows from the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the, the second thing is, let your reasonableness be known um, to all men. Now, okay, first, the, um, the joy aspect. Because it's found in the Lord, like Kala was preaching a, a while ago, nobody can steal it from you. <laughs> so, if you, if you ever want to say this phrase, sure, that person just really stole my joy now, it's not the joy that came from the Lord that that person stole. Uh, because uh, <laughs> because the, the Lord is always there with you, and this joy can't be stolen. He's more powerful than anyone. So if you position yourself in him and find your joy in him, you can't lose your joy. Um, and, and I think often what we actually mean by that phrase is that I, I don't feel so happy anymore. And, and uh, just to quote a very common phrase, it's like, happiness is based on what happens to you. <laughs> but uh, joy actually depends on a deep contentment in God and knowing that he's secure and that he's sovereign and he's trustworthy and I, I can actually relax and trust him in that. So yeah, don't be uh, just swayed by everything that happens to you. I'd rather find your Content and joy in, in a, a deeper source, which is which is God, which is immovable. And then this the second phrase. I, I must say, like I, I was, I remember a few years ago I was memorizing uh, Philippians four and um, the phrase, "Let your reasonableness be known to men." I, I was confused by that. I was like, "What is this supposed to mean?" <laughs> um, and and uh, I looked in other translations, and some translations translated it as gentleness, others as patience, softness, being considerate. And it's like, okay, I still don't know really what this means as as a one concept and Now, in preparation for this, I actually finally looked it up a bit, what it's in the Greek, and it's um, the word that they used is uh, epiaikiai, and it turns out that that's one of those untranslatable words. So, so it's kind of like in Afrikaans, we've got the word lacquer. You you can't translate that to English. Like, there is no English equivalent that captures the full meaning of the word lacquer. So, uh, it doesn't mean lacquer here, but the point is... The point is that this is one of those words that it's got a meaning in the language that everybody understands in that language, but as soon as you try to translate it, you're just like, I I can't find the words to put together. Um, Now, it's it's interesting when you look at what the Greeks said when they were describing this word themselves, they referred to it as justice and something better than justice or something that goes even beyond justice. And uh, it it captures this nuance of when you have IPAKI, you know when to apply the strict letter of the law when to be just but you also know when to relax the law a little bit and actually show mercy and that is the the aspect that we should imitate is is this not just being like strict this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing but to actually understand there are situations and nuances in every person's life and that sometimes we we actually need to show mercy and show grace just to to Give a practical worldly example from this week that happened to me. Um, so, I'm teaching at the university, and uh, every Monday we've got a, a tutorial and then a tutorial test. And this tutorial test counts towards the final mark. And if they can't be there, then the only real excuse that I would ex- accept is something like a doctor's note or something like that. Um, so, a student emailed me, and she's like, Hey, sorry, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going to be at the tutorial. I just want to make sure that I'm not going to like get zero for the module or something. I just want to make sure it's fine. And then I'm like, Okay. You'll get zero for this test, but it's fine. You won't get zero for the model. But if you give me a doctor's note, then uh, I will give you official leave and it won't count against you. So then she went to the doctor and she got a doctor's note and then, okay, great. You've now got official leave. Then later, another person emailed me and said, sorry, I'm not going to be at the tutorial um, because one of my best friends just passed away yesterday and I need to go up to his family and support them in this time. And to him, I said, it's fine, go. I'll give you official leave. I'm not going to count this against you. Um, you don't need to provide a death certificate or something to prove <laughs> <laughs> that the person really died. I, I Take your word for it. I trust you in this and and that is for me a good example of this EPAKI. is it's like the strict letter of the law says zero unless if you give me a doctor's note or something equivalent. equivalent um, And in this situation it's like reading it and like okay This person is really in, a, in distress and he's he really just is <laughs> going through a tough time Let's have grace and not or, or the strict letter of the law um, for him as well and um, you see there's also with um, uh, the woman caught in adultery. The, the strict letter of the law said that she must be stoned to death. Yet Jesus finds a way to turn that situation into a moment where he brings redemption and actually says, go and sin no more. That's also a P-A-K. The strict letter of the law would have said she must be killed. In that situation, Jesus comes with a, a different attitude. And that's the attitude that, that we should imitate. If you really think about it, um, we all, if you want to just be purely on justice sake, we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve to go to hell. But Jesus went and he actually paid the price for us. He went way beyond what justice requires, which is we must just be cast into eternal hell. He went beyond that and he actually offers grace and mercy to us so that we can actually know life in him. So we, if we've received this, how can we not offer this to the people around us as well? So, And that's what Paul is saying in verse 4. Let your reasonableness, let your epiaca, let this attitude of your heart be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. So don't be so strict on every little detail or nuance. The Lord will deal with people, but find a way to show love and mercy um, in situations. And then directly after this, after he says, okay, um, rejoice, he, he kind of realizes, "Yeah, you know, it's not always that simple. Because <laughs> um, the next verse he says, do not be anxious about anything. So he immediately acknowledges that, oh shucks, life has challenges. Life is... Um, is, is a source of worry. If you're not being anxious at the moment, you either just came out of anxiety or you're soon going to head into anxiety. That's kind of just the state of life, is that everything, everything in life is a, is a source or can be a source of anxiety. So, um, and, and if you think about anxiety, the, the, there are, the reason why you're feeling anxious is you don't, often see, you don't usually see the solution out of this problem. And you don't know whether you can get out of this problem and whether you will measure up to this challenge. Let's say, for example, you're writing an exam. You don't know if you're going to measure up. Or um, yeah. You know, let's say the economy is tanking. You don't know if you, if, where the provision will come from. And then you start to wonder, OK, well, who can I ask to help me? You're starting to look to, to people to help you. And, and that's good in itself. But that's not the the, full, the You can't rely on people to solve all your issues. Um, and then another thing is that uh, the person there might be a person that directly caused this anxiety. And now, how do you deal with that situation? So so Paul takes all of this into consideration, and he says, it's not like I am ignorant of, of all of these struggles, but I found the solution, and the solution is pray about everything. So the solution isn't try to find someone that can help you. It's not um, try to escape your situation, run away. The solution is pray about everything. So just to read it again, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, uh, Laura actually prayed this very nicely when she just started her prayer. She was saying that, um, but, like, we can bring everything to you. Thank you, Jesus. We can bring everything to you. That is really his heart. If, if I can you just use Luca as, as an example, my, my son. Um, so, he's two and a half. And, I mean, like, he literally just brings everything to me. So, if, first of all, if he's, if he's actually sad or scared, he's going to run to me. If he fell and he injured himself, he's going to run to me. So he's going to bring those hurts to me. But then also, if he wants a cookie, he's going to come and ask me, can I have a cookie? Um, if he wants a glass of water, he's going to actually come ask me, can I get a glass of water? Because he can't currently get it himself, the tap is Um So the, the point is that he doesn't sit there and think, okay, well, I, I asked my dad like 20 minutes ago for a glass of water. Do, do I think I can ask him again now for this thing? What, what is his response going to be in this situation? I'm not, not sure if I have the confidence that he, no, he just comes. Like, he just has this, like, I need something. There's my dad. I'm going to go ask him. And that's the attitude that God wants us to have. It's just in everything. Just bring it to him. Don't, don't just try to solve things for yourself. Know that there's a God that cares for you, that loves you, that wants to actually help you. And uh, it's this realization that there's nothing too great for God's power, but there's also nothing too small for his fatherly care. So the next word that... Uh, um, uh, Paul uses, he says, by prayer, pray about everything, and then he says, and supplication. Now, supplication is also one of those words which I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm Afrikaans, so I, I don't understand the word supplication. I don't know, how many of you understand the word supplication? <laughs> okay, I'm not alone. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, so, the word supplication means it's it's the action of of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. And, and the, the, with the emphasis really on the humility, you, you're coming to someone that has the ability, the power to do something, and you're coming in a humble posture before them and says, please, please help in this situation, either on, for your own sake or on behalf of someone else. So that supplication is, is this attitude of humility and submission, knowing that there's someone that has the power, but he's also got, um, you know, he's got the, his will is ultimately the, the thing that is most important. Um, you would be happy to say, okay, well, I'm not expecting this of you. I'm just humbly coming in a a posture of asking you. And then the last word that he uses is bring all things to him in thanksgiving. And thanksgiving should be a universal accompaniment of prayer. Um, The the big thing of of thanksgiving is that it, it ties the past and the future together with the present moment. So as you're praying now for something... You're praying with an understanding that God was faithful, he did bless me, he did come through, and I'm thankful for those things. I'm genuinely grateful for those things that he has done already in my life. That gives me confidence now to say that he will be uh, uh, faithful and he will bless me and he will come through in the future. And I'm actually thankful for that consistency in my God and that that reliability and trustworthiness that I I can have in him. So in your prayer, there's a thankfulness for what he has done, but also a thankfulness for his character and his nature, knowing that he will come through. So when you bring things to God, everything, there's an attitude of thankfulness. And we, we actually, I don't know if it's just our culture or, or um, where it comes from, but if you listen to almost any prayer that someone prays, it's, it always says, oh, thank you, Lord, for, and then they go on to something, and then they only ask what they really wanted to ask. Um, and that's a good, good posture, as, as long as that's really something, that gratitude is really something in our hearts, and not just, it's a culture, that's something we pray. But it's actually, we really have gratitude for what the Lord has done. So then, to put it all together, there are two main things: gratitude and perfect submission to his will. And then we bring everything to him. And then that is Paul's solution to anxiety. He says, "Okay, well, there's this challenge that you're going to face. Here's the solution: in gratitude, in submission, bring everything to God. And then the peace of God will, um, will guard your hearts and minds." And it's it's actually cool this word "guard" because it's it's like Paul is now in prison. Obviously, he's seeing guards standing guard the whole time with him. And then he's thinking of this word: the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. It will stand guard before you so that nobody can come in and just take that away from you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a secure place that you're being held in, in God's peace. And, uh yeah, it's, it's a process of understanding. So, in other words, it's not something you just muster up again. You just contrive this peace. I must now feel peaceful. It's a peace that comes from God, the peace, um, uh, yeah, of God that's a process of understanding. Now, I just want to um, make one last comment on this prayer aspect. Uh, for the full picture of prayer, when you bring anything to God, there must be three things that you realize. The first thing is that um, you must be vividly aware of the love of God. In other words, that he wants the best for you. Then you must be vividly aware of the wisdom of God, that he knows what is actually best for you. And then you must be vividly aware of the power of God, that he's capable of bringing about that thing that is best for you. So, I'm just going to repeat that. You must know the love of God that he actually knows what's, he wants what's best for you, the wisdom of God that he knows what is actually best for you, and the power of God that he can bring about that thing which is best for you. Um, I, I often have this challenge, I, I operate an academic ward and there are many atheists there, and uh, one of the questions that just almost always comes up is if God is a God of love, how can there be so much suffering in this world? And it kind of has a, another layer of assumption in it, so if God, the, the point that they're making is if God is all loving and he's all powerful, then surely he should just sort out all suffering. It's like, well, if he doesn't do that, then he's either not all-loving or he's not all-powerful. And that's the challenge that the atheist offers. And um, like, there have been many answers to this about, uh, like, we're in this in-between time, Jesus is going to put everything right, we're now like, living under uh, dispensation of sin, and there's uh, this corruption in the world. All of those things are, are helpful. But uh, one of the, the things that have been most helpful for me is this aspect of the wisdom of God. Because if I, being like let's say I become God, and I'm all-loving and all-powerful, then I would just sort out all the issues. But if I'm all-loving, all-powerful, and all-wise, then I would see a bigger picture, and I would not actually change a thing and do anything differently to the way God is doing things right now. And uh, there's a bigger picture, and that's that's the thing that we, we find our rest in as well. Okay, so then he says, uh, the Paul goes on, verse 8, he's like, okay, well, I acknowledge now the challenges and anxieties, I've kind of given you a solution, and I'm not also not suggesting that you just simply ignore them, so obviously bring them in prayer, but it's, it's not like a, I'm just shutting them out of my mind, it's like I, I imagine that they're not there, but what Paul also says, the second solution, the first one is prayer, the second one is um, set your mind on certain things. Don't feed yourself constantly with things that's going to lead you deeper into anxiety. If you constantly read the news, for example, that's the thing that you're going to think about the most. And then as you think about it more, you will find that you can't stop thinking about it. That's just the way that human psychology works. The more you think about something, the more difficult it becomes to not think about that thing. Now, that's for either good things or bad things. So so rather feed yourself in with the good things. And that's where Paul gets into verse 8, where he says, Finally then, brothers... Whatever is is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's it's similar to what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on the things of above, not the things of the earth. There's a a setting of your mind. It's not just, there's a thinking about these things. It's not just something that happens automatically. You don't just accidentally fall into, oh, I'm thinking about the, the true and the honorable and the just things. It's a deliberate action that you have to take, a choice that you have to make, maybe shifting things around in your life so that this becomes um, something you set your mind on. Um, and, and if you look at this list, Paul kind of breaks it up into two sections. It's, it's the, those things that inspire the worship of God and those things that um, lead us to serving others. So I'm just going to go through all these words quickly because it's just a long list and it's a, every word has a lot of depth in it. So the first one is set your mind on things that are true, so not deceptive things, not things that um, make a certain promise um, that, oh, um, this thing is going to give me peace or this thing is going to give me comfort, but it has no power to actually deliver that thing that it's claiming to promise. So don't set your mind on those things. Set your mind on the things that are secure, that will never let you down, and that is really just God and the things in the Bible. Then what is, whatever is honorable. Now, this word honorable is, again, one of those hard-to-translate words, but um, I've seen someone translated it as um, that which has the dignity of holiness upon it. I'm just going to read that again and try to break it apart a bit. It says, honorableness is that which has the dignity of holiness upon it. Um, The point is that there are many things in life which are just flippant and cheap and just worthless, and those things are attractive to those people that don't take life seriously, but God says, no, I want you to set your mind on the things that are um, uh, solid and p- pure and dignified and worthy of, of me. That's the, what, the things I want you to set your mind on. Those things that are honorable, those things that are worthy of, of in, being in my context, I want those things to be on your mind. The next word is um, whatever is just. And uh, here, the context in which it's used, it's um, kind of implying those things that are due to God and those things that are due to people. So set your mind on the duty that you have towards God and the duty of service that you have towards people, the just things that they deserve, that just things that God deserves, um, that you face the duty and you do the duty. That's, those are the just things. Um, whatever is pure, and, and this is now almost in the context of morally pure or ceremonially pure. If you think about the Old Testament where it was talking about clean and unclean things, the, the clean things which were, it's not talking about like physically washed up, that was often what they did, um, it's the things that are ceremonially clean, which means that they're fit to be brought into the presence of God and to be used in his service. Those are the things that are pure. The clean things are those things that are fit to be brought into God's presence and to be used for his service. That's now opposed to those things that are unclean or, again, worthless or that can't be used for God's service. So we should set our mind on these things that are pure, that that's fitting in the context of God. And then whatever is lovely, and here it, it kind of means something that calls forth love. So set your mind on, uh, on the things that, that people find attractive, like sympathy, um, kindness, patience. These are the, the lovely things that call forth, forth love. Constant criticism and finding fault and rebuking everybody the whole time does not call forth love. There is a place for that. In terms of we, we looking after each other and in love, you can sometimes bring a rebuke. But if that is what you're known for, is you just constantly rebuke, or you just constantly find fault, then that's not. it doesn't call forth love. It's not, not lovely. So you set your mind on the things that call forth love so that you can operate in that same attitude. In just the last few years, it's commendable. It means that it is something that's of good report. It's something that's good to hear. And then whatever is excellent and worthy of praise, in other words, those things that are done well, and the point is not that we want the praise for doing things well. The point is that if something is do, done well, it is worth imitating. So set your mind on those things that are worth imitating so that you can actually also operate in that and then be pleasing to God as a consequence. It's let your light shine to, uh, to people around you in such a way that they will glorify your Father in heaven. And that happens when you do things well and excellently. Okay, verse 9. It says... Um, so he's now kind of done with the anxiety and the set your mind on the good things. He now goes on to, so in general, everything that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So there's two aspects here. Whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen. The, the learned and received, if you, if you think about the function of a teacher, he, he's goal is to say there are certain truths, certain doctrines that I need to convey, I'm going to pass them through my mind, color them in so that they um, cause an illumination of those doctrines so that someone that listens to it can understand it and receive it, and it's in a palatable way that they can actually make something useful out of that. So that's the one thing, it's just whatever you've learned and received from us, so all of these truths that we've conveyed to you, but then we didn't just teach you these things, we also lived them out, and that's the part where you've heard and seen them. you you could listen to our speech. You can listen to the way we spoke to each other, the way we dealt with each other, the way we, um, we lived. You could see this in us. Our actions um, demonstrated the practical realities of these truths that we were teaching. And that is what Paul says. Practice these things then. Kind of do the same thing. As, you, as you've seen me imitate, uh, uh, do things now, imitate me in doing the same types of things. And then he says, if you do this, the God of peace will be with you. There's this presence of God that comes kind of comes with us when we actually just walk in the spirit, when we walk in the way that God desires for us to walk. It's pleasing to him, and his presence and his peace just comes around us in that. Um, And and again, this word peace, I'm like to a Jew, the the word peace is shalom, and shalom is not just the absence of troubles or the absence of of difficult things. It's this word of fullness, which means that you are fully satisfied in every way. That is the the wholeness that you desire as a person. That is the, the peace that God brings when he's with you. Okay, verse 10, he says, "Um, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So the first point I want to make here is that Paul is rejoicing that they have revived their concern for him. But he says, like, it's not that you were never concerned for me. You you initially helped me in my ministry. And then there was a long period where you were not able to help me. And it's not that you were not concerned for me, you just didn't have the opportunity to help me. Like I know you, your hearts were there with me the whole time, but you just didn't have the opportunity. But it's, it's a, a point of rejoicing for Paul that they have now again, has the, they have the ability to again um, help him in his ministry. And it's not that he's speaking of, I actually need any of your money. He's more just glad for, for them having the, the freedom and opportunity again to give. It's not like I have any lack, therefore I need your money. Because he says, actually in that time when you were not able to support me, God has taught me a very valuable lesson. So I'm actually kind of grateful that you were not able to help because now I've learned the lesson or the secret of contentment, of being content. And uh, um, then he goes on to explain this contentment a bit. He says, um, I know how, it, uh, how to be brought low and I know how to abound in in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, hunger abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And there's that verse which is incredibly well known, but almost always quoted out of context. Um, but the, the point that Paul is making is his contentment is not based on what he has. It's a contentment that is, that's, goes beyond that. It's, it's, uh, if I could put it in a, in a single phrase, it's contentment is to want what you have. It's not being envious and saying, okay, I wish I had that thing. It's also not being complacent and saying, I'm just con- like content. I'm just sitting back. I'm not going to do anything more. I'm not going to pursue anything more. It's not complacency. It's not envy. Contentment is in that middle ground where you say, what I have is the thing that I actually want to have. And therefore, I'm satisfied with what I actually have at the moment. Um, and, and this mindset can only come from knowing your God who is in all things um, faithful and just and he's going to bring you through any circumstance um, if you know that where you are is exactly where God wants you and that includes a measure of suffering and not having enough having some lack then you can rest in the fact that God is with you he will supply your needs he will come through for you and because of that knowledge of who your God is therefore you can be content and that's what Paul ends with by saying that um, I can do all of these things I can face plenty I can face hunger all of these things is possible because of him who strengthens me. It's not because I have mustered up this ability to not care about suffering or not have any desires anymore at all. But it's because I know who my God is and I know that in the moment when I'm not having enough, I can trust him and he will be faithful. Um, it's actually interesting, the word that Paul uses for contentment, it's a, a commonly used Greek word. That, that it was actually something that they strove after, but they interpreted this word as being, being self-sufficient. And they had all of these strategies as to how to kill all of your desires and how to get to a point where you don't need anyone in your life. You're entirely self-sufficient. And Paul is kind of using this word and he's redeeming it in a Christian context where he says, this is not an act of war. It's not like I'm just killing off all my desires. It is not self-sufficiency. It is God's sufficiency. It's knowing who God is and therefore I am actually sufficiently provided for. And then just the last thought on this, the... Um, mostly when we struggle with contentment, it's because we don't have enough. But Paul says he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. So it's, it's like the plenty and the abundance he also learned how to face. And that is actually not so easy. And the moment that you have abundance, the natural inclination is to chill, to sit back, relax, actually just enjoy life, to stop pushing and to stop pursuing God. And he's learned that even, even in the times when God provided a lot, how to keep himself committed and submitted to the Lord instead of just falling into the trap of riches. So he learned the secret both ways, which is quite an amazing lesson to, to learn. Okay, so then um, he goes on in verse 14. He says that, uh, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So again, he didn't expect it of them. He, he was content. But it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, Macedonia is just where the church of Philippi is located, um, that no church entered into uh, partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even uh, in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So they have been helping him and there was a period that they couldn't help him. Now he says, not that I was seeking a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, okay, so there's quite a lot in there. I'm going to just unpack some key thoughts here. So, so the first thing is, he says, I'm not seeking a gift, but he's glad that they were able to give because this is kind of a proof of the fruit that they're bearing, the fruit of love for him that they're bearing. And they can't love him to the extent that they would give him unless give something to him unless if that love was first inspired by the Holy Spirit in them. So he's so grateful to see that the love the Holy Spirit is working in them is overflowing in them, supporting him, which means that he doesn't actually need to worry about them. They're fine. The Lord is with them. The Lord is working through them. He doesn't really care about the money, but that's just kind of evidence for him that there is a reality of God in their lives. And that's one of the aspects that uh, I think is often missed, is that, no, we must just give and give and give. God loves the cheerful giver. We must just muster up cheerfulness and then give. But actually, it should be an overflow. And if you don't see that overflow, you don't give more. You get to the core of the problem, which is you need more love. And you get that love from the Holy Spirit bearing the fruit in you by staying in Jesus, feeding yourself on him, thinking about all of these things that we were talking about. That's, That's what feeds this urge to, to actually give. And then when it's done with that attitude, then, as Paul says, it's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Um, and if you look at the Old Testament again, you see this same idea a few times, where the, um, God, through Moses, God instructed the Israelites how to bring certain sacrifices, and there was this very strict process and how the animals should be prepared and what they should be like, and, and uh, then how you should slaughter the animal. There's this very strict ritual that they had around it. And then, in some cases, people bring sacrifices to God, and God's like, this is amazing. This is a sweet-smelling fragrance. This is a, uh, like, I enjoy this. And then there are many other times, actually, in most of the Old Testament, where people keep sacrificing, they keep doing all the right things, yet God says, I despise your offerings. I, I can't take it anymore. Just stop it. Like, just leave it. I don't want it. And the reason is because their attitude of heart with which they brought it was no longer what God desired. It was never about the sacrifice. It was never about the... Giving of the thing which costs you something, it was, is your heart in a place where it's from an overflow, that it's not just the ritual, but it's actually a relationship with God that drives you to this, to this action, that it's almost like, how can I not do this? I love God so much. And again, if you feel like you're not uh, doing enough or whatever, the solution is not doing more, the solution is finding Jesus and let him work that through you. And then this verse 19, it says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Um, I just want to stand still. I think Stuart was praying it in the same way earlier. It's like my God will supply every need. It's, it's not God out there in the distance. There's, there's this closeness that, that we can have. It's my God. Like I know my God. I trust my God. I, I know what he will do in the situation. He will supply your every need. He won't just let you face these challenges and these struggles, and just leave you to suffer by yourself. He will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And then, um, yeah, to the glory, he, he does this to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just the last two verses, and then I want to make some closing thoughts. Um, verse 21, Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. It's, it's quite cool how it's He's, he's intended to, for this letter to be personal. He doesn't want this to just be, oh, yes, some some cool thoughts. He's like, from my side, personally, greet everybody in Christ Jesus. And the brothers who are with me here also greet you. And he says, all the saints greet you, um, especially those of Caesar's household. And I don't want to go too deep into this, but Caesar's household um, doesn't necessarily mean it's Caesar as in like the emperor of, of Rome's household directly. It's, it's kind of a phrase used of, those connected to the household, which is kind of all government officials. But regardless, it's kind of cool to see at this stage in in Christian history that there was a measure of of Christianity moving into the government positions already in Rome, and uh, that it's it's actually found um, there's no bound to this. It's uh, obviously moved into the Gentiles, but it's also found itself into the governing authorities of those that day. And then the last verse um, in chapter 4, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's, yeah, It's just a good, good well-wishing for them that the Lord would be with them and support them and strengthen them in their spirit. Um, that it's not just the physical that we focus on, but it's the spirit that, that God wants to strengthen and um, make sure that that aspect is also well-looked after. So a, a few thoughts um, being drawn together here. You, you, you might sit here, and as I've been speaking, you might realize I actually have a quarrel with something, someone. Either someone has something against me, or I've got something against someone, and God's encouragement is, work it out. If you need, a th- need to get a third party in this picture, work it out. Forgive, release, don't dwell on these things. Let's work and uh, strive for the unity of the church. Second thing is, you might face anxiety in your, in your life. I'm like, like I was saying, that's an inevitability of life. And you might desire peace, and you might be in this mindset of, um, of I need someone to help me out of this situation, then I will feel peace. I need to get out of this situation, or I just need to get to a certain point when this thing is done, and then I'll feel peace. But the question is, is can a person, or can something that you just rely on, can that person actually bring you deep inner peace and just the tranquility of your heart? And the obvious answer is no. But God can. And we get that peace through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We make our requests known to Him. The third one is, um, if you're unhappy with something that has happened in life, you're actually discontent. There's um, something that didn't work out, something didn't pan out the way you you were hoping uh, it would, or someone disappointed you, there was an expectation you had that didn't play out in the way. In that situation, are you hoping that that person would come through and meet your need, and once they do, then you'll feel content. So let's use Paul's example. When the Philippians weren't able to provide anything for him, was he kind of sitting there waiting until the Philippians were able to provide before he will feel content? Or do we actually stake this one step further and say, our contentment is in God that gives us strength, not in a person. So not in a situation passing, not in something resolving itself, but in the midst of that situation, God that gives us strength. So I suppose the bottom line encouragement is stop hoping in someone or something to fulfill you and keep you satisfied the whole time. It's not fun for you. It's not fair for that person. So don't put your trust and your hope in someone, a person, to pull you through. Um, Only God can supply all your needs and you must learn to depend on Him. And that's why we need to constantly seek him. We need to pursue him. We need to, um, like I was saying in the beginning, abide in the vine. We, we seek his presence. We pursue God. And in that place of being in Christ, positional in Christ, we find all of these things kind of working itself out. And we find the happiness that we actually need. But we also find our needs being met and supplied for coming from God. Um, just to end up with this verse, and, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. In glory in Christ Jesus that is our source in all of these challenges all of these struggles our focus should be back on God he's the one that supplies every every need that we have so yeah that's that's Philippians 4 and uh, I don't know do you want to
1: so um, you know uh... So um, I just quickly, you know, Jesus. Jesus made a remark on John the Baptist. They asked who he is. He says, "Well, this is a prophet in your midst." And then Jesus goes, "Well, more than a prophet," and he explains this. So I'll, I'll just make a quick comment on Rensu. All right. So for us to understand who we have, and then how to receive him, Rensu is a teacher, right? And we've got a teacher in our midst. And if we have a teacher in our midst, we must learn how to receive our teachers. All right. So. Someone, someone make this comment, people that are focused on encounter, people that are focused on worship, people that are focused on prayer, will always be full of life. People that are focused on reading, and people that are focused on studying, will be always full of substance. Our problem sometimes is that we can start drifting to a place that, you know, our the the life that we want to draw from certain, from certain meetings or what we have is life encounter. These are the, these are the, these are the words that we associate with what we have, right? And then sometimes what we do, that's our meetings have life, but in some areas we become shallow, right? And so when, when someone like Renzo comes, we need this gift, right? Because in some of the ways that people handle Scripture and some of the things people handle life, you know, it's like almost as long as God pitch up, as long as Jesus said this, as long as there's that type of encounter, it's fine. But many times in the finer dealing with things, in the really carrying the substance, they're, they they're coming, they're coming really short. And actually, because we have a very much an experiential Christianity, our Christianity is experiential, but sometimes shallow. All right. And man, we want to encounter God, right? I mean, that's, that, that's part of our DNA. We want to encounter God. We want to experience God. God is real. But sometimes we must watch out that we become shallow in some ways. And we need guys to call us and go like, whoa, guys, before we sum up the Bible in three words, <laughs> right, right, let, 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 whoa, 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 You know, uh, when we spoke about the, 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 the prophet, the evangelist reached the father's the ring finger is the pastor that's the weakest, but the teacher is detailed, and he goes deep in there, right? This is like, let it go now, man. We've heard now. God loves us. No, 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 no. There's a certain nuance to this, and the teacher goes, and he goes deeper, and actually, our understanding of things becomes more weighty and more substantial, right? Right? And so I, I, actually, uh, um, I actually felt, I'm glad Reince was here, I actually felt like even though as a church we are, we've experienced God, I feel like God wants to increase the area of substance and weightiness in certain things. And some of us, some of us can have our hearts like this, it's like, oh, all right, all right, all right, move on, move on, move on, right? I think you will miss the gift, <laughs> That was, that was exposed, and God wants to work, work in our midst. Okay, I wanna, I'm going to pray. So Jesus, I thank you for your body. I thank you for the different gifts that is in your body, Jesus. Father, we as a church want to say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We want to receive every gift that you have, Father, in order that the body can grow up in maturity, Jesus. Father, we thank you for the the prophetic in our midst. We thank you how the prophetic operates in our midst. I thank you how it breaks things open, how it bursts life and it birthed experience, Father, in us. But, Father, we want to also grow in substance, in weight, uh, uh, and in maturity in all areas and in all aspects, Father. And, Father, we pray in the way that we will handle your word and handle your scripture, Father. We'll be reverent. Father, and with care. We thank you for the gifts that is in our midst that will help us to deepen and become more of substance. We praise you and we honor you for your body, Father. You give us everything in order for us to grow up, and we want to receive that. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Sure, that was amazing. Thank you so much.